readings this evening. And the first one is uh, John 19, starting at verse 38, which can be found on page 1088 in the Bibles in your pews. So John 19, beginning at verse 38, and I'll go on to chapter 20, verse 10. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped round Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still do not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And the second passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is on page 1156. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Thanks, Lynn, for reading that. Uh, could you, can I ask you to turn back to the reading we had from John as well, which is on page 1088. It's been a delightful, a delightful weekend of weather, hasn't it? I love it when it's too hot. Uh, I'm so not used to it growing up in Glasgow. So um, it's a delightful time. But it makes you sleepy, doesn't it? Warm weather and a warm room. So just keep having a look at who's sitting beside you. And if you see their heads nodding forward, just jab them slightly with your elbow. But very gently, just enough to wake them up uh, and not too much. Um, Now, sometimes one week uh, just follows on from another, doesn't it? It feels like it's just the same old, same old. uh, And you long for something um, a little bit different. Olaf, can we... No, there we go. Thank you. Spare a thought for Neil Trotter, uh, as Manor read about. A couple of years back, he was having one of those weeks. He was a mechanic, car mechanic. Uh, And one Friday morning, starting work, he went to make himself, just at the beginning, a coffee. um, And he went into the office where the coffee machine was. And one of the office staff, a young woman, said, All you do is make coffee. Don't you ever do any work. That's harsh, isn't it? And Neil said, Neil said, Well, I won't be working at all after today. I'm going to win the lottery this weekend. It's a bold claim, isn't it, Uh, to say something like that. It rarely puts office staff in their place. It certainly wouldn't round here. Ben, who works in the office, if he was giving me a hard time, if I said, I'm going to win the lottery, it wouldn't put uh, Ben in his place at all. And you can imagine, in Neil's case, uh, you can imagine them saying to him, nice one, Neil, but at best it's improbable. It's pretty implausible. And given the real world that most of us live in, you winning the lottery is just about impossible. And look, some would say something very similar about the claim that's at the heart of the Christian message. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, the message of the Bible that Jesus claimed to be the God who made you and me that he's the creator, the one that made us, that he was executed on a Roman cross, that he was dead without question, that he was buried, and three days later he rose to a new kind of life and one that can never die again. And in so doing, validated his claim that he'd come to express God's right judgment on us for the way we've ignored him, explaining the reason why we live with a death sentence hanging over us and we hate it, but then to die himself, bearing our punishment, so that he could give this new kind of life to anyone who would accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's a bold claim, isn't it? When you begin to hear it that kind of way, it's an in-your-face kind of claim, backed up by another claim, the resurrection of Jesus. And many people would want to say, look, it's just a fabrication. It's a fairy tale. You can't expect people to, to believe that kind of thing. It's improbable. It's implausible. It's just impossible. And Neil Trotter's doubters, this number, 107,932,603, 
they might have changed their minds because that's how much landed in Neil's bank account. There you go. That's a big number, isn't it? I mean, how do you explain that? How do you explain that a car mechanic has, has got that kind of money in his bank account? Would you credit that? Who would have thought? So what about the resurrection of Jesus? It's interesting that the Bible writers, they don't just say, look, if you're someone who wants to be a Christian, they don't just say to you, look, what you need to do is you just need to screw up your eyes and believe things like this. You're just going to screw up your eyes and believe things like the resurrection. No, they treat us as thinking adults, and they say, look, consider the evidence. See what's in the bank. See what's in the bank when it comes to this claim about the resurrection. So what we're going to do for most of this evening is just together, as we look at this passage from John's Gospel, is just try and see if we can figure out how we think about the resurrection. I think it'll be helpful if, it'll be helpful if you're a Christian already. It'll be helpful if you're checking things out. If you're at the stage of being around church things and Christian things, if you're at the stage of thinking, do you know what, how, how do I make sense of this? I think it'll be helpful if you find yourself in this situation where you're talking to somebody else who raises questions about it. Maybe it's school. Maybe at work, and somebody throws up some questions about it. I think it'll be helpful, and it'll be worth thinking these three steps uh, that we've got up here. Is it, is it possible? Is it plausible? Is it probable? And the, this first one, is it possible? Is it, is it even possible? And I, I think the counterclaim would go something like this, wouldn't it? Look, dead people don't come back to life. It's fairly straightforward at that point. Uh, and I think we'd want to say, the Bible would want to say, Christians would want to say, look, generally that's true. We agree with that. But the Bible's not claiming Jesus' resurrection is, it's not saying at any point, look, this was something that was just bound to happen, given enough time, someone was bound to just come back to life. No, it's saying something quite different, isn't it? It's telling us something that it would say cuts against the direction of travel of the entirety, almost, of human history. It is the claim that God has done something unusual in human history. And so the question is more like this. If there is a God, if there is a God who created the universe, stars of immense size, the earth teeming with life at every level, you with your hands, your, your hair, and your heartbeat, if he can do all that from nothing but himself, he can make all those things, is it not possible he could raise someone from death. Why would it be? Why would it be impossible? And someone might want to say, "Well, look, I just don't believe in God or miracles," and they're entitled to do that, aren't they? People are entitled to say that kind of thing. But you realise when you do that, at that point, it's not kind of based on evidence, is it? All they've done is screw their eyes up and say, "I just don't believe in that kind of thing." Now, if there is a God, I think if you're willing to concede that at any point, there might be a God then resurrection is possible. If God can make the entire universe out of nothing, it's not impossible that he could raise someone from the dead. So as you begin to think about the resurrection, that first question, is it possible? I think, yes, it is. The next question might be something like this. Look, is it plausible? And by that, I mean, does the evidence presented give a credible explanation that could reasonably lead you to say, yes, that would explain it? Let me introduce you to someone. Here's Steve. There's Steve. 
I just picked that name at random. Imagine somebody you know called Steve when they were younger. And imagine you are asking the question, who ate my chocolate ice cream? I just left it on the table for a minute, and I came back and it was gone. And someone says, it was Steve. Steve ate it, and you see Steve's face. Now, it doesn't mean, does it? It doesn't mean he definitely did do it. But it's plausible, isn't it? The evidence on his face would align with, with an ice cream theft. Now, John, John in his account, he wants to present, that's what he's doing through his gospel that we've been reading through. He wants to present plausible reasons to believe. He's wanting to give us all sorts of things. Let me, if you've got John's gospel open in front of you, let me draw your attention to some. One is this, like kind of obviously as we talk about this, there was a dead body. You read back into earlier on in chapter 19, the soldiers, if you were here this morning as Steve, uh, this other Steve, no relation to the ice cream theft, of course, um, Steve took us through it. The, the soldiers who were used to crucifying people, they're pretty sure he was dead. And just to make sure they, they stuck a spear in his side, uh, I flinch at an injection. A spear in the side is a different order of things, isn't it? And then in the reading we had, if you got it there in front of us, verses 38 and 39 of chapter 19, at least two well-educated men, they're no slouches intellectually, Joseph and Nicodemus, they're the ones. They weren't part of this inner group of disciples who were really close friends with Jesus, but they're the ones who transport him to the tomb, prepare his body for burial. And they didn't seem to spot any signs of life. No, he was really dead. There was a dead body. And the next bit of evidence John wants to put before us is, well, look, this tomb, and he, he makes sure we know uh, that it was a new tomb. That means there was no other bodies in it. There was only one body going into it. So that when people come to check, it isn't like there was loads, and you've got to make sure which one's missing. No, there was only one body in it, and... The tomb was really empty. John records Mary, this follower of Jesus, going to the tomb, verse 1 of chapter 20. She notices the stone that would have been sealing it was moved. And then I think the implication of verse 2 is she's checked and the body's gone. And her, her claim is backed up by two other people, John and Peter. Verses 4 to 8, as they hear her story and they come to the tomb to check it out. No one, it seems, disputes Jesus was dead. No one disputes the tomb was empty, that his body had disappeared. But John draws our attention to another detail, and that's the grave clothes were left. And you think, why does he make a big thing of that? And he kind of labors it. In verse 5, John looks in and he sees them. John's not wanted to go into the tomb straight away. Peter, he rushes in and he spots it. He spots a bit more detail, that the parts around Jesus' body. Uh, were lying where the body would be, and the, the cloth round his head seemed to be lying there just a little bit separate to where the head would be. Why would you mention that? Well, I, a couple of reasons, I think. One, if you've come to steal a body, why would you unwrap it first? It seemed like an odd thing to do. It would take quite a bit of time to do that and then be off with the body. And also, it begins to look more like with the piece around the body lying where it was and the, the head piece lying where, where it was, it, it begins to look as if almost as if the body's just passed through it. There's something unusual has happened in the tomb. And according to verse 8, if you 
spotted it, as Lynn read it, that was enough for John. He starts believing something dramatic's happened. Peter doesn't seem quite as convinced just yet, still thinking it through, but John, it seems it's enough for him. He starts to believe that Jesus is alive again, but John mentions another detail. And it's that the Old Testament predicted all of this. The, the first part of the Bible. You see what he says in verse 9? Just have a look at it. John comments this. This is writing later and looking back on it. And he says, They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. What John, who's writing this, is saying, Look, they, they later discovered in the message of the Old Testament is all through its predictions that one day God's saving king would die and then rise from the dead. Loads of them. You could look them up. Psalm 16 is one of them. Peter quotes that. And much later when he's, he's preaching a sermon, he'll quote Psalm 16. Say, this is what it was talking about. Isaiah 53. It talks about the suffering of God's servant and then him coming to life again. Now, the Old Testament predicted it. And look, finally, there were eyewitnesses of a risen Jesus. We're going to meet them in John's Gospel next week, but but that other reading is going to come up on the screen. You don't need to turn back to it. Peter, uh, Paul writes about it in his letter, 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read these words out for you. You can follow them on the screen if you want. Uh, Paul writes this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for sins, for our sins, according to the Scriptures. There was the message in the Old Testament that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Uh, one of the claims is that maybe some people made up this story much, much later on. Kind of invented this story as the church was getting going. But Paul's writing within 15 to 20 years of these events. And the way he accounts for it is he says, this is the message that was passed on to me that I heard. So it can't be something that's just been made up much later on. And by mentioning the, the 500, many of whom are still alive, you understand what he's saying to his readers? You could go and speak to them. Now, there was eyewitnesses still alive today. Uh, you could track them down. And from that point on, the message of the resurrection has been believed by Christians and the church grew from a small band of believers in the backwater of a Roman Empire to become a worldview believed by millions with men and women not just believing it, but down through the years being willing to, to lay down their lives for this belief in Jesus. So the point is perhaps something like this. Look, think back to Steve. There he is. There's Steve. Is it possible? I mean, is it possible that Steve stole the ice cream? Oh, yes. Looking at his face, is stealing the ice cream a possible, expl a plausible explanation for what's happened to it? Oh, yes, I think it is. And look, here's Beth. Here's Beth as well. And she said she saw Steve. She saw Steve do it. And you think, oh, Beth. That's not all you did, is it, Beth? You were involved too, but there we go. It's, it's plausible. So, 
so too here. Is it possible? If you're going to consider the existence of a God, is it, is it possible that God could raise the dead? Well, I think, yes, it is. It's got to be, isn't it? Can't be out with the bounds of possibility. It's possible that, that God could raise the dead. If he decided to do that, if at a point in history God decided to raise someone from the dead, could the evidence surrounding Jesus find a plausible answer in saying that he's the one who's been raised from the dead? Well, I think yes. It's definitely plausible, isn't it? All the things that were going on around him. So, so finally, the, the last kind of question is we think it through. Is it probable? Is it probable this is the answer? Uh, Tim Keller, uh, a Christian author and and pastor, he writes about this saying, nothing in history can be proven the way we prove something in a laboratory. You, uh, la- laboratory. Uh, get my words right there. That could have gone in a very different direction. In the way we prove something in a laboratory. Um, it, you get the idea of that. You, you can't just repeat historical things. They're, they're one-offs, aren't they? They happen at a point in history. But he continues, look, if, if you don't short-circuit the process with some kind of philosophical bias against the possibility of miracles, the resurrection of Jesus has the most evidence for it. What we're getting at is, look, if this is the claim of this thing that happened in history, of all the explanations there could be about what might have happened to Jesus, which one is the most probable? It's quite warm, isn't it? Have you noticed that? You're feeling a bit sleepy? Let's, let's have a moment of just a little bit of interaction, just to make sure you're still awake. Just with a person sitting beside you, or a couple of people sitting beside you, what other explanations could there be uh, for the empty tomb, for the body missing? Maybe there, there's some you've heard from other people. Maybe they're ones you genuinely think yourself, but just to make sure we're... We're waking up a little bit. You can have a stretch. You can fan yourself and just turn to the person sitting beside you. And if they don't turn to you, they've probably gone to sleep and you decide whether to wake them up or not. But just take a minute or two. What, what other explanations could there be?
Okay, let me, let me draw you back in. I'm not going to get you to shout out. Maybe we can talk, talk afterward about it. What, what might some alternative explanations be? Let, let me give you four. There's others that come around, but let me give you four that sometimes get uh, pushed out by people. I think they're going to pop up on the screen. Are they? Oh, that, there we go. Uh, he, Jesus wasn't really dead. Uh, grieving friends were hallucinating. Grave robbers stole the body. The disciples stole the body. Let, let me just chat through some of those. Jesus wasn't really dead. Uh, it's been suggested by some, and I think it's pretty hard to believe that Jesus didn't quite die on the cross. And he revived in the cool of the tomb and made his way out, and he gave convincing proofs that he'd risen from the dead. But I think it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that the Roman soldiers uh, somehow managed to mistake his death. Joseph and Nicodemus doing the same. And disciples thinking that a crucifixion survivor had been raised to new life, and then that the authorities, not finding this, what must be incredibly injured man, even as 500 people claim to have seen him. It's quite hard, isn't it, to, to come up with that as a probable answer. What about this when grieving friends were hallucinating? And look, it, it does seem to be true, doesn't it, in moments of real grief. People do hope for and imagine things. Things they really want to be true. It's completely understandable about that. What I think is tricky here with the accounts of Jesus' resurrection is the number of people who would have had to have uh, the same hallucination. 500 people over a significant period of time. And the hallucinations if you're going to go by what the eyewitnesses were claiming they saw, was they included, well, conversations, physical contact, and even sharing meals together. And at that point, it, it doesn't seem quite probable just to say to people who were claiming to be eyewitnesses, you were just hallucinating. Uh, there's more than that going on. There's another one. The grave robbers stole the body, and that would account for the missing body, wouldn't it? And certainly, it's true that grave robbing took place at the time, so much so that it actually become a capital offense. Now, this was something that happened with a certain amount of frequency. But if that were the case, it wouldn't explain, would it, why so many of his followers claimed to have seen him, and not only to have seen him, but to decide they must proclaim his risen life as good news to be believed and even when threatened by death. And Blaise Pascal at once wrote, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. That seems a bit of a grim thing to say, doesn't it? But you know what he's getting at. You take seriously men and women who are willing to die for what they believe. It doesn't mean they're, they have to be right just because of that. But you listen to them seriously, and you don't just write them off. These are people who are serious about what they, they believed. And almost all of the apostles and many early church leaders died for their faith in Jesus. And so I suppose that also answers the, the claim that his disciples stole the body. If they did it in order to carry on some belief in Jesus' teaching, which they knew at heart to be a lie, I think the more you look at the evidence... And the more I think you find that the claim that Jesus rose from the dead is not only possible and plausible, it is the most probable of answers. And if that's true, 
I mean, if the claims of the resurrection, if it is possible, if it is plausible, and if it is really the probable answer for the evidence that John and the other New Testament writers present, well, what you find is that in the bank, there's not just £107,932,603. Because we know there's some things that money can't buy. No, you find what's there is something much more valuable than that. Now, what you find is that God has come into the world and has not only given us compelling evidence that he exists, he's also brought a challenge that our lives are not right before him. And that our hatred of death is absolutely correct. Because it's not how things should be. But also in the resurrection of Jesus, there's hope. There's hope that your life matters. That your body matters. Because the resurrection of Jesus says that it's not just in some way, it's not just a belief that your spirit somehow lives on beyond this life. No, that there's a, there's a physical resurrection. There's real life. And so the resurrection of Jesus says that your future matters as well. It's not intended to run out at a graveside, but it depends on knowing the one who's conquered death. Jesus, who's been raised. So the last thing, just very briefly to ask, is that what do you do with the resurrection? And I think, I'm thinking, you know, if that's, how do you think about it? What, what, what do you do with it? Well, there's lots of things, but here's something for you to consider this evening. I, I think this says, in our thinking, the resurrection's got to move from, Olaf, can we put these out? It's got to move from, from just being an awkward question Christians need to answer. And it's also got to move on to be a serious challenge that needs to be considered, presented, proclaimed. That's what the early church thought. They didn't just think it was an awkward thing that they've got to come up with an answer to. This was something that's got to be presented to people, put in front of them. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, for someone who's not a Christian, I don't know all of you tonight, you might be here and you might be thinking at this point, do you know what, I'm, I'm not a Christian yet. Well, for someone who's not a Christian, this means, this being true, this means that the Christian faith is not some kind of fabricated fairy tale. Jesus Christ has given credible, historical evidence for believing in him. And it's not enough to think we could just write it off as religious superstition. No, if we disregard Jesus Christ that way, then we are failing to engage with evidence. We're failing to engage with history. We're failing to be rational and thoughtful. In a reading from earlier on, John says that the Bible speaks about these things. And so if you do want to consider them, I think John would say that's a good place to start. Have a read of the Bible. See what you make of the evidence. And for those of us who are Christians, I think the thing to consider is, look, the early Christians, as they spoke about Jesus, they would keep this historical fact central. The Jesus who died on the cross is also the one who rose again. And I think if someone says, look, why are you a Christian? One answer could be to say, because I believe I believe in the historical facts. I've been persuaded by them. 
I find them compelling. There is credible historical evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And as you talk to them, if they're willing to talk about it, you can ask something like this, couldn't you? What would it mean? So what would it mean if death, with all of its sadness, wasn't the end? And what if there was evidence that could show that was true? What would you want to do with it? That'd be a big question to put in front of people. I'm going to stop there. I'd love to talk some more uh, over coffee at the end when we stay around. Let's keep thinking about that. Either it's how we think about it ourselves, the questions we've still got, how we talk to other people about it. But let me mention just a, a couple of other things. Where did I put them? We have a wonderful book stall um, up at the back on the side over there. One of the books on them, if you've not read it, Tim Keller's book, The Reasons for God, he, he goes through all sorts of things. And just thinking about the Christian faith, he's got an excellent chapter in here on the resurrection. If you'd like to read something else on it, this would be a great book to get hold of. There's two copies of it, this one and one up there. Uh, the chapter on the resurrection is super easy to read. Really helpful. Let, let me commend that to you. And then the other thing to think about is, if you're thinking these things through for yourself, John's Gospel that, that we're reading tonight, I, I've got a couple of little copies of John's Gospel. These would be a great thing to take. If you're Christian already, you can come and take one as well. Maybe you've got a friend that you're speaking to. Maybe you've got a friend that you're speaking to, and you could offer to give them one. Say, how about reading this? Checking out the claims of Jesus, particularly about his resurrection. See what you make of them. I'd love to chat to you about that. Let's stop there. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, The musicians are going to come back up. And after I've prayed, we're going to sing two songs. Yeah, do you want to come back up now? Thank you. So I'll pray. And then once I've finished, the music will begin. And we'll stand and sing our closing two songs of praise. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that in the message about Jesus, you give us something that's not just telling us to screw up our eyes and believe as hard as we can, but you give us compelling evidence that your Son has come, that he is who he claimed to be, that he died the death he said he would die, and he rose just as he said he would. And it happened in history, so we can be confident about it. Uh, Please help us to consider these things and to live in light of them. Amen.